there's a wrong way to approach the book of Proverbs. You could approach Proverbs like you would the sayings of Socrates or wisdom statements from Gandhi or someone who was a well-regarded and insightful person about living and think, well, Proverbs, you know, here's another thing like that. But this is not another thing like those other things. The wisdom of Solomon is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of Solomon is the wisdom of God. This carries with these chapters an authority that transcends cultures and locations and times and people. These are statements of wisdom that address the different areas of life, but they guide and orient the heart unto life eternal with God. That a temporal pursuit and earthly living for the glory of God would be followed by everlasting communion with God. That's not what Socrates gives you. And all the wise and influential people in history who have said good things about many good subjects, they are subservient ultimately to the wisdom of God in special revelation. That's what we have in Proverbs. The wisdom of Solomon is the wisdom of God. These are not just efforts at Solomon to say, you know, you probably want your life to be better. Don't you all want your life to be better? Here's some things that will help you make it better. Now, of course, living wisely in the fear of the Lord will increase and mean fruitfulness in a variety of ways. It is to say we see kingdom ethics when we look at Proverbs. These are not just philosophical reflections of a wise person. The words of Solomon are the words of God. And therefore, when we want to grow in wisdom, the Lord has given us a book full of wisdom. Maturing and understanding more of our faith ought to be our goal as believers in God. And therefore, we care about Proverbs. Our passage this morning takes us in verses 15 and 18 to a unit of contrasts. And I want to notice with you the beginning and the ending first. The beginning in verse 15 says the simple and the prudent have different actions. And then in verse 18, the simple and the prudent are resumed. Do you notice in verse 15 and in verse 18 how the simple and the prudent both begin and end our passage? Now look at the two verses in the middle. In verse 16, there's language about one who is wise and then a fool. And then in verse 17, an expansion on the fool. There are, yes, there are contrasts, just like we see in many parts of Proverbs. But the, the framing of our passage today is concerned with two individuals known as the simple and the prudent. We have to define our terms. What do I mean and not mean by the word simple? Well, this doesn't refer to someone who lives a simple lifestyle. It, somebody might claim, well, you know, I just I enjoy simple living. That's not what this means. That is not what this word refers to. Or, you know, so-and-so, they like to just live simply. Not, that, not the word here. This is not a knock on somebody's intelligence. Oh, that person is just a simple-minded person. Somebody might use that phrase in a derogatory way. The word simple here in the book of Proverbs means naive. Not fully formed in their thinking toward the embrace of wisdom or ultimately folly and rebellion. It's it's a, a kind of moldability and susceptibility that could go one or two different ways. 
The word simple in Proverbs is referred to is referring to the unshaped and unformed character. You can use the word naive or even gullible. Someone that is vulnerable and susceptible to what they hear to internalize that and live it out. And the one who is simple or gullible or naive might have their mind open to receive things that ought not be internalized and ought not be lived out. The simple believes everything. That's not a virtue. You might expand the statement to make it a virtue in one sense to say, well, shouldn't we believe everything the Bible teaches? That's not what this verse is talking about. Of course, we should embrace all that God has made known of himself. This language about the simple believing everything means the simple, the gullible, the naive is surrounded like we all are with voices talking about all manner of things from all different directions. And the gullible does not discern. This person does not respond prudently to what they hear, thoughtfully about what they filter. This person just takes it all in like an open bucket. Everything poured in from every angle about every subject under the sun. The simple just receives all of that and is naive about it all. They are open-minded to a fault, one writer said. Somebody summarized some statements in um, J.K. Chesterton's writings once. J.K. Chesterton, famous writer of fiction and nonfiction, somebody summarized his teachings to make the following claim. When a man stops believing in God, he doesn't believe in nothing, he believes in everything. When a man stops believing in God, he doesn't believe in nothing, he believes in everything, anything. Open-mindedness to a fault. An undiscerning trust, an undiscriminating trust, One writer puts it this way. The simple have not learned to distinguish wisdom from folly. That's part of the development and maturation process that they're in. They have not yet fully learned how to distinguish between what is wise and what is foolish. Which makes the opening chapters of Proverbs so compelling because woman folly calls to them. Woman wisdom calls to them. And the simple are faced with those choices. Will I heed the voice of woman folly or will I heed the voice of lady wisdom? And lady wisdom says in chapter 9 verse 6, leave your simple ways and live. Again, this is not living in a basic or simple way like somebody might think of simple living. Leave your simple ways means leave your gullible, naive way of thinking and living. Be done with that. There is a prowling devil. There is real wickedness and evil. Leave your simple ways and live, the lady wisdom says. She says, leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Well, you can't walk in one fresh direction until you leave the wrong one. And the simple are called to leave a particular way of thinking and inhabiting the world and to walk in a different manner altogether. The simple person believes everything. Warren Wearsby commented about this verse and he says it's popular 
and politically correct to be open-minded and uncritical of what other people think and believe. And according to them, whatever feels good down inside is truth for you. And nobody has the right to criticize you for what you believe. But Wearsby says, apply that philosophy to money, medicine, mechanics, maps, and see how successful you're going to be. It turns out that what you most sincerely think is the case turns out to be functionally and practically unlivable. Leave your simple ways and live. There is real right and wrong, real truth and error, real righteousness and wickedness. And the simple are in a maturation process to where they have not fully distinguished between folly and wisdom. This is what makes the scripture so key. You see, when the writer of Proverbs is speaking to his child, the youth, that's the audience of so many of these chapters... And then by extension, all of us as an audience of these chapters in his wisdom. The the writer is speaking as someone formed and shaped, even in his prayers and instruction, by the word of God. He calls him in chapter 1 to fear the Lord. And the reason he does that in Proverbs is because earlier scripture instructs God's image bearers to fear the Lord. This is someone who is committed to the authority of Scripture, and a commitment to the authority of Scripture in one's life is what leads to a maturation unto wisdom for the simple, and not a plunging headlong down the path to folly for the simple. A commitment to the Scriptures. I shared with you a quote a few weeks ago from Pastor Matt Chandler in Texas. Chandler says, if you're not confident in the authority of the Scriptures, you'll be a slave to whatever sounds right to you. If you're not confident in the authority of the scriptures, you'll be a slave to whatever sounds right to you. Well, we want to live our lives being influenced by what not simply instincts or sounds right kind of uh, responses are in us. We want to be guided and directed by what we know is the truth. And that's why our commitment to the authority of the scriptures must be rock solid and convictional. It tells us here that the simple believes everything. Well, that ought not be true then for the believer growing in Christ Jesus. Discipleship involves not only learning, it involves unlearning along the way too. Because when you come to know Christ, you find out that certain ways of thinking about the world and thinking about your life and thinking about what's present and future were wrong. And then the word of God brings needed correction and you find that as you're learning new things, you're unlearning unhelpful and untrue things along the way too. That's all our journey, isn't it? That is the case of what it means to grow in Christ. We find that as we grow in wisdom, we won't believe everything. We test it by the scriptures because of our commitment to the authority of God's word. The prudent, that's what we want to become. If the simple believes everything, the prudent gives thought to his steps. That's envisioning movement, right? Giving thought to steps means I'm thinking about where I'm going. In Proverbs, that's the metaphor for the choices you make in life. The steps that you take as the prudent person, this tells us the prudent gives thought to those steps. That's another way of saying you're not just throwing yourself into whatever decisions are possible and not really giving any care or caution. You are thoughtful, You're discerning. You are asking questions. You're inviting wise counsel. You're giving thought to your steps. The prudent person is not one who lives in fear. The prudent person knows that foolishness and recklessness bring ruin. 
And the prudent person isn't eager to add more ruin into life and into the world. The prudent person wants to glorify God and honor the Lord with one's life. And that means being thoughtful about our decisions. The prudent person thinks about their feet. They're even willing to ask personal and pointed questions to themselves. Questions like, all right, here are some steps that are possible in front of me. Is this honorable to God? That's an important question that the prudent person has on their mind. Is this something that honors the Lord? Or is this something that I know, according to Scripture, dishonors the Lord? The prudent person thinks about their steps. They might ask a question like, how is my choice here going to affect other people in my life? Will this strengthen and firm up my relationships with them? Or is this going to bring harm and conflict and tension to my relationships? The prudent person, in other words, cares not only about what their own life's steps are heading toward, but how their decisions affect other people. The prudent person cares about their neighbor. Or they might ask a question like, okay, here are the steps that I could take. Would I want other people following my example? Maybe I've got younger siblings. Maybe I've got friends. And, and, and maybe they're not looking at these, such, these options like these just yet. If I make these decisions, would I recommend those decisions to others? Would the lives of others be better and improved if they imitated my example? The prudent may ask questions like, have I invited wise counsel? Maybe I'm looking at a decision and I'm not sure what to do. And that's okay. That's a very normal human feeling. It is not the case in life that as a Christian, you should expect to know exactly what you should do in every single case because there's a verse for it. You have to sometimes act with wisdom, discretion, and invite wise counsel. That also the Word of God uh, speaks to. And it encourages you to, uh, to um, well, you think about how man makes his plans and the Lord directs his steps. That's one sense. But, in a, but a, a plan might seem right to someone, and yet in the presence of many counselors, the Proverbs say, there is much wisdom. And this means you might, as a prudent person, ask, well, have I, have I said to someone of sound mind and wise counsel, What do you think about this? What am I not seeing? What questions might I not be asking? So the prudent person thinks about their steps. I'm just trying to give some basic practical application questions here. Like if a a prudent person gives thought to their steps, what would that sound like? It sounds like the questions I have posed to you, though certainly not exhaustively. Verse 16 connects to this. The wise person is the prudent person of verse 15. In verse 15, it says they give thought to their steps. In verse 16, sometimes those steps look like they head into evil. Well, what's the wise person going to do? Verse 16, one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil. So if I've looked and I've asked questions like, is this honorable to God? What would other wise people in my life think? Will this bring harm to my life or to my relationships with others? Would this be an example I would commend others to follow? And all of a sudden we realize, I might be dealing with a moral matter actually. And if this is wicked to do, then I want to turn from that. If that's an evil decision in the fork in the road, I want to turn from that. The one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil. So as the prudent person discerns their steps, the prudent person is no longer as simple as they were, as gullible or as naive as they were. 
They've lived a little. They've experienced much. They've gone through suffering, trials and hardships, and the world with a prowling devil devil have had a kind of toll on them to where their naivety and delusions about life aren't what they used to be. They know there is right and wrong, and righteousness honors the Lord and brings blessing to others, and evil brings ruin to one's life and strife to others as well. So the prudent person or the wise, they're more cautious about this. They turn away from evil. Now, why wouldn't somebody do that? It sounds like a good idea. We would think here, turning away from evil. Well, of course, wouldn't we just all want that? And yet we know as image bearers, that's not the decision always made. Why would somebody not turn away from evil? A few suggested reasons here. Number one, their their desires are disordered. Their desires are disordered. We experience this as sinners in a fallen world. Our affections, our desires and loves in life are not what they ought to be. We face temptations of idolatry and loving and pursuing things that don't honor the Lord. Disordered, wrongly aimed desires. So they want what is sinful. One reason people don't turn away from evil then is they want it. They don't love the light. They love the darkness. The deeds of darkness draw them. That's what they want. It's not as if they are going into sin against their will. That's what they want. So one reason people don't turn away from evil is the state of their sinful desires. Number two, they have a fear of man. There are things that they might never do as an individual that they will do with other people. They don't they don't rise above the pressure. They succumb to it. If enough voices gather around them, they long to be included and embraced and affirmed, and so they live in fear of not being. And so the fear of man may be a reason people don't turn from evil is because the people doing evil are the people they want the approval from. They don't want others to mock them. They don't want to be scorned. They want the affirmation of fools. People who love evil and are committed to wickedness are not people whose approval you need. In fact, seeking their affirmation and joining with them in unrighteousness will not only further their ruin because of the example they themselves have set, you've now begun to to imitate that. Don't you realize you will reap what you sow? So one reason people don't turn away from evil is that their sinful desires don't love what they ought to love. And secondly, they have a fear of man that animates them. They don't heed the warning of chapter 13, 20, which says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise and the companion of fools will suffer harm. They don't really believe that. They think they can be a companion of fools and not suffer harm. They think they're the exception to the Bible. Thirdly, maybe they have a wrong view of sin altogether. They don't fear its consequences. It doesn't seem as bad as others would say. Its horror and nature of transgression do not strike them as it ought to. So they have a wrong view of sin. These are some of the reasons why you might look at the steps of someone on their path and think they're not turning from evil. They're continuing in it. Why? Well, reasons like this, friends. But the one who is wise, the one who is wise is building their life on the truth of God's word and living in a practical way skillfully before the Lord, not because they're sinless, but because they do truly love God. They really want to honor God. 
And they really know that they are saved, not by their own righteousness. How could that ever be? But because God in his rescuing grace has redeemed them and they want to follow him. They love God. A fool is reckless and careless. Look at the second half of verse 16 here. If the one who is prudent or wise looks at their steps, asks questions, gives thought to their path, and they turn away from evil, the fool is reckless and careless. We might use the word careless in kind of a benign way sometimes. If, you know, if you, if, you, uh, if you wake up the next day and you, if you left the food out from the night before and you think, oh, that's ruined all those hours while we were in sl- sleeping that need to be refrigerated, well, that was, a, that was a, a careless moment, okay? You ought to have given attention to something, but it wasn't the worst thing, unless it was one of your favorite meals, and then you're just really brokenhearted. The word careless sometimes is used to mean just a lack of attention to something. But it's paired here with the word reckless. Careless and reckless are not neutral here. The words careless and reckless are part of a pair that are of a riskier kind of behavior. The word careless and reckless are used not in the sense of brave or courageous. Recklessness is not bravery. Recklessness is not courage. Someone who's living in a reckless manner is not giving thought to their own well-being. Think of driving. We have all been on the road and seen someone driving recklessly. Whether they're, on a, whether they're in a car, whether they're on a motorcycle, we have seen someone operating a vehicle where we thought, not only are they being reckless, they're going to, they're going to seriously injure themselves, so they're not giving thought to that, or they're going to kill somebody else, and they don't seem to care about that either. Carelessness and recklessness here are about that. Living in a way that is not for the good of your well-being and soul. And not only not attending to the well-being of yourself, but having decisions that actually bring harm and strife to others. The fool is reckless and careless. You say you're living this particular haphazard way. They They don't care if they're living recklessly. Well, think about what you would do to yourself and what this would mean with others. They don't care about that either because they're a fool. The fool is committed to wickedness and is not animated by love of God and neighbor. That's not what drives the fool. The fool is reckless and careless. They are not known for self-control. You might say for the fool that impulsive decisions have marked one disaster after another in their life. They've been reckless. They've been careless. And they have the scars to show it. The stories to share about it. They can tell you what has happened in their life due to their carelessness and recklessness. In verse 17, we see an example of this in real time with a a practical anger issue. Verse 17 does talk about acting foolishly, and it focuses on the man of quick temper. Now, I know verse 16 says the fool is reckless and careless. Sins of a fool can manifest in many different ways. Here's one of them in verse 17. So verse 17 is an expression or manifestation of the careless, reckless behavior a fool has in verse 16. Verse 17, a man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. Something is different here about verse 17. Maybe you noticed it already. We don't have here a contrast. Verse 15, the prudent and the simple. Verse 16, the one who is wise and the fool. In verse 17, 
this is not a contrast. It is an extension in the second half of the verse of the same individual. A man of quick temper and a man of evil devices are both things undesirable. So no contrast here. This is someone who acts and, um, and, uh, and behaves in a manner that is foolish. The Old Testament and New Testament speak about sinful anger. There is righteous indignation, righteous and holy anger about sinful issues. That is not this. This is a living rashly and a quick-temperedness that leads to acting foolishly. Two types of foolish people here then. The man of quick temper and the man of evil devices. Notice in verse 17, the man of quick temper is just described with his actions. He acts foolishly. The end of verse 17 tells you how the man of evil devices is received by others. It turns out that living wickedly is going to affect other people in your life. It says a man of evil devices is hated. And it's talking about on the horizontal scheme and the way that he is in his most proximate as well as social circles and relationships, how it is affecting those circles and relationships. There is a despising and a rejection of and an ostracism of evil. A man of evil devices is hated. Just think about these two expressions. A man of quick temper acts foolishly. This is different from feeling quickly disappointed about something. Everybody has experienced high expectations that weren't met, and you thought, I'm so disappointed here. Disappointment in a fallen world is, is a very normal feeling. There are plenty of times, though, where circumstances might change, and you didn't feel any disappointment at all because emotionally the stake wasn't very high. The investment wasn't very great. And you thought, you know what? I can roll with that. I can, I can flex here. This would be totally fine. Some change of plans. No problem. So there are times where something changes outside of what we were trying to control and it doesn't bother us at all. And other times you can face tremendous disappointment. He's not talking about the response to disappointment. He's uh, the response of disappointment. He's talking here in verse 17 about the response to disappointment. A man of quick temper acts foolishly. So something has gone differently than what you wanted. Something was said, something was done, it was outside you, and your temper escalates. It's the response here that the writer is concerned about. A man of quick temper acts foolishly. A quick temper and impatience go together. One writer recently reflected on his family and children and parenting wisdom and what he shared in this book. He said, I I realize at times it's not so much as I've run out of patience as I've decided not to be patient anymore. He said, I just realized that in in my heart, I just sort of tried to justify and think, you know what, I've just run out. I've just run out. I'm out of the fruit of the spirit. Acts of the flesh kick into gear. And he says, I haven't so much run out of patience as I've just decided I think the acts of the flesh will now be my strategy. And what a poor one chosen indeed. A quick temper and impatience go together. Impatience is a form of pride. Impatience is focused on oneself. Something that the self wanted, expected, that did not happen. Other selves in your vicinity have intruded on what you wanted to happen in a certain order. And all of a sudden your temper or impatience are all inflamed. Impatience says to other people, I matter more. But patience says to others, You matter more. 
So even if the expectations were not met, even if the circumstances changed, even if the plans fell, fell apart, the importance and debt of love to neighbor did not change. Disappointment, that's one thing. But how do we respond to that? Well, the man of quick temper acts foolishly. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Have you realized how hot-temperedness not only doesn't fix the issue, it makes it worse? Have you noticed this about yourselves? If you ever find yourself in an experience where you thought, looking back, yep, I lost my patience there, I, uh, or I decided not to be patient anymore, and, and all of a sudden my quick-temperedness was on display, and you know what? It didn't fix it. It didn't solve the issue. It turned out it frustrated everybody else, escalated the whole circumstances. It's true in Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Chapter 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Well, it turns out that hot-temperedness isn't a remedy for strife. Who'd have thought? Thank you, Bible, for telling us things that even by experience we know to be true. Like, we know this. We know looking back, yeah, you know, I might have thought that venting that and expressing it that way felt good at the time. But a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. He who is slow to anger quiets contention. Sinners are described as hot-tempered. The Lord is never described as hot-tempered. His anger is always righteous. And the Bible says the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in love. But when we walk around impatient with others, that's not being abounding in love. That's being quick to anger. Proverbs 19, 29, I'm sorry, not 19. Proverbs 29, 22. A man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. Ah, so it turns out, doesn't it, that living in anger and impatience with others is not only sin itself, it leads to more sins. One given to anger causes much transgression. People lose their temper. And then think of the things people say when they're angry. All of a sudden, their tongue is loose. Their filter is lost. Think of the things people do because they have lost their temper. Quick-temperedness leads to further transgression. What's just helpful for us as beings with emotions and circumstances and who must face all the time in a fallen world things not going the way we wish they would. To know that a man of quick temper acts foolishly. And a man of evil devices is hated. Evil devices here seems to be a broad notion. This is not just rageful anger. Evil devices, that means somebody with wicked plans. Wicked resources and endeavors. They're a person of devices in that sense. Well, in verse 17... Here's a response to, with, of the fool to, to something in life, quick-temperedness, acting foolishly. And yeah, that can be embarrassing. Somebody can look back and feel incredibly humiliated by losing their temper. A man of evil devices is hated. You see, the fool can't keep their foolishness with the top on there, and it's just boiling and, and the pressure building. Folly will show itself. It will show itself. And in the life you live with other people, they're going to see and receive it in some sort of way. Well, not only do they see you acting foolishly with quick-temperedness, a man of evil devices is despised. This is a person who doesn't act with love of neighbor, 
driven by wickedness and selfishness, this is a bad end here. One writer says it could be as much as public hatred or ostracism that's meant. A man of evil devices. This means they deliberately plan. Well, let's make a distinction here. I don't think someone who is impatient with others and is quick-tempered woke up that morning with that plan. There can be an impulsiveness, a thoughtlessness to impatience and quick-temperedness. That's different from the second half of this verse. A man of evil devices. This is what they are known for. They are characterized by deliberating and planning in a manner that pursues wickedness. And somebody who acts that way is a menace to others. Because those who know what is good and love what is good, they despise wickedness. They don't embrace that. They don't love that. They're harmed by it. They're humiliated by it. Affected by it. Not just in a household, but also in friendships and workplaces and society at large. The concentric circles keep building and the ripple effects keep being felt. A man of evil devices is hated. We're called to love God and love neighbor. And in loving others, our actions would be understood to be a blessing to them. I'm not saying that for the gospel's sake, we wouldn't still be insulted or reviled for the sake of knowing Christ. That's different. This is being despised because you have pursued and committed wickedness. Let that not be the case for us. Let it be because of our love of the cross and our love for the word of God that if we are reviled or insulted, it's because of a commitment to righteousness, not because we have loved the darkness and lived wickedly. What's coming for these individuals, the simple, the prudent, the wise, the fool? What's down the path? I've said to you over these weeks that the Bible in the book of Proverbs is so helpful to us here. The Bible sees farther down the road than we do and says to us, here's what's coming. And it uses the language of inheritance in verse 18 and the verb of being crowned. Now, both of which are at the end of something. Being crowned takes place in some sort of ceremony, especially with an athlete who runs a race. And there's some kind of giving of a garland or a crown or an award, a medal. So this, this is in view of what's to come. What can they look unto and look forward to? But the word inheritance is used for verse 18. And inheritance is also something we think of as future. What's coming to me? And I want you to know, friends, the rock-solid truth of the Bible. And I'm not talking about just with 10 years from now or 20 years from now. I'm talking about with eternity in view and the fullness of God's plan. The righteous will get what is coming to them and the wicked will get what is coming to them. Because God is God. And evil will not escape the last day. It will not. God will have the last word. He is altogether to be feared. You hear people say sometimes, listen, only God can judge me. As if that shouldn't be horrifying news to the sinner. Only God, as if that's a small thing. The righteous and just God who knows all human hearts. From whom there is no refuge outside of Christ Jesus from righteous wrath. The simple inherit folly. Now in verse 18, the language of inheritance would normally set us up to think of something good. You want to inherit something that's beneficial, that will sustain, that will be a blessing. Well, here's the 
irony then, isn't it? In verse 18, the simple inherit folly. The only reason this would happen is if those who are gullible and naive refuse the voice of wisdom. So what's the alternative then? If they refuse the voice of Lady Wisdom, the only voice there is appealing to them is Lady Folly, and the simple believes everything. Verse 15 tells us that. Their open-mindedness is to a fault. They don't live convictionally according to the Word of God. They don't live counterculturally in the, ma- in the ways that matter. The simple, therefore, inherit folly, and therefore, folly's end as well. The prudent, verse 15, told us they are those who give thought to their steps. Which means they care about where they are and where they're going. It matters to them deeply. They want to live for the glory and praise of God. And so at the end of their days and even in the midst of that, they are growing in wisdom and are crowned with knowledge. A crown is an image of something you do want. You don't want to inherit folly. That's not what we want. Being crowned with knowledge, that is desirable. The writer then lays out for us what ought to appeal and what ought, and what ought to be repulsive. We ought to be appealed by this crowning with knowledge for the prudent. We ought to be repulsed by the idea of inheriting folly and the end that comes with that. I think it's correct, as one writer said in verse 18, that these verbs envision ultimately the eternal state when God will recompense each according to what he has done. We see this in John 5, 28 and 29, where those who are raised are raised unto life and others unto uh, everlasting judgment. We see this in Romans 2, where Paul teaches that those who are following the Lord, consider they're the righteous and those who are the good, they will receive what is according to their works. And here we find even the wicked and those who live in folly should be warned and tremble at the idea of what's in store for them as well. Not just temporal difficulties, though folly brings that. Not just challenges and harm and frustrations in life, though yes, foolishness escalates that as well. I'm talking here about what is ultimately to be inherited by the fool. And what ultimately lays in store for the prudent and the wise. I think eternal states fulfill the trajectory of this verse. My mind thinks of Paul's words in Galatians. What we need, friends, this morning is to not live in the flesh, but in the spirit. That's another way of talking about verses 15 to 18. We look at these verses in light of the whole of God's word. I think it's another way of saying this. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions. Paul goes on and on. He says, I warned you. I warned you and as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What will they inherit? Folly and the end that comes with it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We give thought to our steps and the prudent love the fruit of the Spirit. Because when we walk in wisdom in the fear of the Lord, that's what our lives in Christ Jesus are characterized by. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in Colossians 3, Paul says, put away anger, malice, slander, and obscene talk. 
don't lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices. The old self has practices. So in our Christian lives in Jesus, we are to put off that old self with its practices and and embody a life for the glory of God that is the fruit of the Spirit. He says, put on as God's chosen ones in Colossians 3.12, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. He says at the end of this, above all, put on love, which binds everything together in the peace of Christ. Rule in your hearts. You see, friend, if I look at Proverbs 14, 15 to 18, and I say, I want to be prudent. I want to walk wisely. I want to give thought to my steps. Then what do I need? I need Christ. I need Christ. I need a Savior. Because left to ourselves in our folly, we are to inherit folly in its end. We know that the words of Proverbs are ultimately the words of Christ to us, directing us. He is greater than Solomon. More trustworthy than any philosopher you have ever read or known. We need him because his words are words of life. They bring us life. They lead us into life evermore. During his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus was a man of prudence. Praise God for that. Walking always with wisdom and giving thought to his steps. Loving righteousness and doing righteousness. He was never reckless, never careless. You could read verse uh, 16 here. The fool is reckless and careless. No one could ever say that about Jesus sincerely. He turned from evil always. He was no man of quick temper, and he was no man of evil devices. No. What were his plans? What were his devices? Oh, the Lord Jesus was a man of righteous devices, praise God, and redemptive plans. Waking and then all the way to sleeping, his days were characterized by loving God and neighbor. We need Jesus. We need the work of his spirit growing us and maturing us. From a place of naivety about life or gullibility about things and claims in the world to loving what is true. And Jesus comes to us that we might love him. And he says, I am the truth. So follow me. Let's pray.